Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. New York Times did a big piece describing how not only are the prices of various healthcare procedures wildly different from facility to facility, from area to area, region to region, but they're wildly different at the same facility, depending on what sort of insurance plan you have or if you don't have insurance. And Craig Gottwals, Craig, the healthcare guru, joins us. He's an attorney at law, benefit consultant, uh, and, uh, and, and knows more about this stuff than about anybody. Hey, Craig, how are you? I'm well. How are you, gentlemen? Uh, good. Uh, so Joe's going to ask all the questions. I'm taking a, uh, home COVID test while Joe asks the questions. <laughs> <laughs> at one fifth of the cost of what it would take cost you to do that COVID test uh, with a nurse. Exactly. So I'm about to stick the swab in my nose and then to stick it into the liquid, and I'll know in 15 minutes if I have COVID or not. So while you're talking, this is about, exciting. While you're talking about, man, I wish, I wish, I wish y'all still had the live cast because I would really like to watch that. That'd be good times. I'm going to jam this thing way up in my nose too. I want to get this right. <laughs> yeah, I'll, you can get it. I'll listen when, to your when interview. It, when with... it pushes back, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you know you're right at the sweet spot. <laughs> Yeah. All right, so Craig, God. you as the most organized human being I've ever met have sent us a, uh, a, a kind of a prep sheet, a fact sheet, why costs are all over the map. They are. They're just nuts. Where do you start? Well, yeah, the the, uh, the New York Times did a pretty good job of cataloging some, some nice uh, examples of it. And, you know, this kudos to the Armstrong and Getty show. Um, we talked about this two years ago, gents. I mean, we, when, when Trump first floated the idea of these regulations, uh, we were on the air saying, this is a fantastic idea. It's not a silver bullet, uh, but it's a great first step. We need to have transparency in these prices to give the market any chance at all to fight back against the, the bureaucratic oligopoly we have now. Um, so a couple foundational facts, because you, you cannot look at this topic without reiterating some of the basics with healthcare. Right now, in blue states, taxpayers pay 70% of all healthcare costs. In red states, it's 65%. You're looking at roughly two thirds of all healthcare costs nationwide are funded by taxpayers. Healthcare costs us 18% of our GDP, which is $4 trillion a year. That works out to $11,600 per person, not per family, okay? U.S. debt, we, we always hear about U.S. debt being $28.5, 29000000000000 trillion. Fine, that's the low number. But when you add in the real U.S. debt, when you add in the unfunded liability of Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, so again, primarily insurance company functions, we owe $465,000 per citizen. Again, not per family, not per taxpayer, right? So we have a huge problem. The very single largest problem facing our country um, as sad as what's going on in Afghanistan is not that. It's not terrorism. It's this. It's the cost of health care. It's the cost of insurance. And it's our budget. Why is it so With screwed up? Who, who, who are the major players? Who are we looking at? Okay. So skipping around here a bit, we've got, we've got what I would call an oligopoly, which is we have four major providers of health insurance across the country. It's, they're commonly referred to as BUCA, which stands for the Blues, United Healthcare, Cigna, and Aetna. 
Uh, the New York Times article throws in Humana, but they're rather small in the grand scheme of things on medical care. So you've got these giant insurance companies in bed with the federal government. They, they, they worked hand in hand to write Obamacare. You also have the pharmaceutical industry. And then last, but and, and probably least, frankly, is large hospital chains. The individual medical practitioners, small doctor groups and individual doctors are not the problem. It's the bureaucracy and the inefficient market that we've created working together that are the problem. Okay. Skipping ahead to why has it boiled to a head so badly now? I mean, this has been a growing problem for 40 years, but Obamacare did one thing that was rather draconian and bad in 2009. Obamacare put in a price control on insurance companies. Again, no good deed goes unpunished. This wasn't done with bad intentions. But what Obamacare did was it said, hey, insurance companies, we don't want you price gouging. So what we're going to say is that you're only allowed to mark up your prices 15% more than the claims you pay. It's called a medical loss ratio. So what that what that did was to say, okay, we're going to we're going to limit the profitability of insurance companies. And again, a lot of people on the surface thought that was a good idea. Well, in practice, a decade later, what we see is it's been a horrible practice. It's exacerbated the problem because now for insurance companies to increase profitability, they have to increase claims. So where the negotiation used to be between a large hospital chain and insurance company, the insurance company was always trying to keep claims as low as possible. Now, insurance companies have a reduced incentive to, to lower claim cost. So if, for example, if an MRI goes from 1000 to 4000 well, the insurance company gets to keep, as a profit margin, 15% of 4000 as opposed to 15% of 1000 And because there are so few players, the consumer really can't say, screw you, you suck, you're, you're overcharging, we're overpaying, I'm going with a, a company B. That's exactly right. It's become increasingly difficult because, like I said, We've got hospital chains that are gobbling up small hospitals. So we have a a handful of very large hospital chains nationwide, four large insurance companies and a federal government. And they all, as, as we've talked about going back to the book, this town, they all trade executives over the years and they're all in the same muck together. The, the whole thing, um, by the way, I did my nasal swab and I'm waiting now my 15 minutes for the result of my COVID test. So. Um, the whole thing with the medical care. So I've sp- I spent 24 hours in the emergency room two days ago. I've talked about that. Then at another medical facility. At no point in this process, at, at any point, has the idea of what this costs come up ever. I mean, no. no so that, that that's that's just the way the whole thing works. There's there's all these numbers moving around and prices moving around somewhere in a computer with somebody between the hospitals, insurance companies, whatever. But I haven't seen a single price at any point. We, that's just where we are. And it's been that way for... No, and the, the, it's forever, basically, yeah. in our lives. Yeah. And the system is set up, Jack, so that you don't see the price. Because, again, the fundamental problem, coming back, repeating something we've talked about on this show before, the, the largest purchaser of health care is now the federal government. The largest federal government program purchasing health care is Medicare. In order to keep Medicare from completely tanking our budget, I mean, some would argue that uh, 465,000 per citizen, our budget's already tanked. But, you know, let's 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 just play this game for a bit and say, what can we do to keep Medicare from, you know, the Bernie Sanders 30 trillion dollar plan from taking over? Well, what Medicare does is they artificially suppress what they reimburse for health care. So Medicare health care is inflating at three to six, three to four percent every single year. Okay. But the, the federal government only increases what it reimburses for health care 1% every year. 
Well, that puts added pressure on the hospital chains to negotiate higher reimbursements with the insurance lobby. And now with the Obamacare mandates in place, the insurance lobby says, yeah, bigger claims means more profit for us. Okay. So these prices get spun out of control. And that's why you see things like paying 10 times the cost of an MRI if you're in private insurance versus Medicare. Now, on at that and says, see, Medicare is doing a better job at negotiating prices, but they're not negotiating at all. They're just saying, if you want to play with the federal government, which is, by the way, the dominant monopoly in healthcare now, this is what you'll take. And you'll you'll make up the difference on the backs of those 30 percent of people that are paying for their own health care. This is the problem. And this problem is not going to get better unless we have dramatic changes. This law was a good first step. But as if you've read the article, you know, the law has problems and we need we need more. You know. So presumably, then, if that 30 percent of us who are paying for our own health care with the uh, aid of our beloved uh, corporate fathers, um, if, if we went away, if it becomes all government health care, that enormous subsidy that keeps health care excellent to the goes extent away. that it is goes away. So we end up with away. crappy, crappy DMV style medicine. Right. So I look, I pulled this stat just a few moments ago and knowing that our knowing that our conversation would end here. So you, you, you guys typically will ask me, um, why does a doctor take Medicare then? And the answer is because the, the federal government's the largest buyer of health care. And so without putting a huge dent in their business, they really have to do that. Plus, the Hippocratic Oath is do no harm and they feel a moral obligation to do so. But now it's we're to the point where roughly only 75 percent of doctors will accept a new Medicare patient. But it's only 55% of new doctors that'll accept a Medicaid patient. Medicaid is for the low income, of which one in three babies are born on Medicaid now. One out of three babies are born on Medicaid. That's a stunning statistic. And And when Medicaid was created in the late 60s, it was only designed to cover the lowest 2% of the population. Now one out of three babies are born on it. And here's the, now 55% of doctors will accept Medicaid. So we're getting into a crisis, right? Where we don't have enough doctors that'll take this low cost. Here's the stat that really blew my mind. 38% of mental health experts in Medicaid will take a new patient, Jack. Wow. This, this is a problem, right? You, you've talked about this on the air as well. This is, this is the problem we're seeing for kids with mental health anymore. When one out of three kids are born into a system where only one out of three doctors will take a new patient, this is, this is where we're seeing that this is the iceberg tip of the crisis. And meanwhile, the government policies related to COVID have caused a crisis in child mental health. Uh, so uh, Craig Gottwals, Craig, the healthcare guru, is on the line. Uh, before we uh, drive people to take up arms, um, what should we be advocating for? I know price transparency is a great first step. Uh, what else? Is there another yes. big one people yes. should be writing letters and shouting about? Well, before we leave price price transparency, I do want to say that this is, you know, there is a a, a slight ray of hope here, right? This was a Trump and the New York Times did a really good job of burying the fact that because they because the New York Times likes this new regulation and, and they did a great job of burying the fact that it was Trump's idea. It's a Trump idea that they go on and they do say on like page six in the article that the Biden administration supports. So. This law is good. As you know, most hospitals are simply ignoring the law because the maximum penalty is only $110,000 a year per hospital. These hospital chains make $5 billion a year. So having it be $100,000 a year is ridiculous, and that's why 80% of hospitals are ignoring this transparency rule. But they are going to try and increase the fine to $2 million next year. So it, 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 the first step is, is talk to your congressman, send a letter saying, 
we support transparency, increase the penalties, make the, make this data more readily available. So that's step one. Step two, for large employers, this is employers with, say, more than 300 employees, we've got to move to what's called a reference-based pricing system. Cut insurance companies out, self-fund your plan, and don't use a network at all. Just go direct you insure your employees, and we will directly negotiate those reimbursements with the providers. There is a system to do that. Some employers are starting to. It is one way to break up this bureaucratic oligopoly. Wow. Okay, Craig Gottwald's the healthcare guru. Armstrong and Getty. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. Are you tired of gulping down the lying filth of the mainstream media? Yeah, we are, too. We try to tell you the truth every single day. Gulping down lying filth. Wow. Nobody wants to sound dumb. Our goal is to help you not sound dumb. We'll inform you, and it'll be fun at the same time. You have to choose between entertainment and information. Combine them both with the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty On Demand. Four episodes available every day via the iHeartRadio app or wherever you download your podcasts. So I was thinking going VR this year for Christmas for my kids. Man, doing this whole Christmas thing with divorce is just couldn't suck more. But anyway, um, I'm thinking going VR with the kids and by far the most recommended, popular, all your independent tech people recommend, blah, 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 is the, the Oculus 2 something or other. But... It's a Facebook product. So you know how Facebook announced a month or so ago that they're no longer Facebook. They're, what are they now? Meta. Meta. So he's, he's really going big on the whole uh, VR metaverse stuff. And so they have the best technology out there right now for VR. And, um, I was going to get that for the kids and I, they ought to make this more clear because I was on, like, I was on Best Buy and questions, answers and reviews and stuff like that. And then I thought, well, what's with that? I better click on that. It's the angry people. And it was the people who say, how do you not tell people ahead of time you have to have a Facebook account before you can use the damn thing? So how would you like to get up Christmas morning, open it up and find out you have to have a Facebook account? And if you don't, it is useless. I mean, you the can't wrath up, you, of Mark, the wrath of Mark. You can't do the VR thing. Your kids can't at all unless you want to be part of the Facebook world. Some of you are part of the Facebook world and you think, what's the big ideal? But uh, idea, but I could tell from looking at those reviews and the way I feel about it, that's mm. a pretty big river to cross. Just remember. If I'm all of a sudden going to become Facebook guy. Facebook exists to sell your data. The VR exists to sell your data. If Facebook comes out with an antibiotic, it'll be to sell your data. <laughs> raison the entry. Right, it ended the pandemic and stole your data. <laughs> exactly. I'm trying to decide. I might become Facebook guide, like just get an account and never use it. But if it's on your phone or your computer at all, it's just you're just you're you're a slave to Mark Zuckerberg, right? Well, and it grabs up all your contact, all your data, reaches yeah. out to everybody you've ever known in your oh, life and everybody boy. they know, and and give them your home address and the rest of it. <laughs> All right, that's a slight overstatement, but you know, not that sort much. Of thing. All right, so uh, here's uh, here's here's my thing. I guarantee you'd hate about the uh, the automotive industry, and and Toyota is leading the way. Evidently, their their fob, you know, your little electronic fob that you have instead of a key, you can remote start your car with it. But that's a subscription. 
that expires after a certain number of years, and after then you have to subscribe to it. So the functionality of your car is a subscription. I think I came across this the other day, and my, my first thought was me being me. I will find out. I will be reminded, oh, yeah, you needed to renew that subscription when it's raining and I'm standing outside and my car won't unlock at 11 o'clock at night at the airport. That's mm. when I'm going to, oh, that's right. I needed to resubscribe to be able to open my freaking car door. Oh, boy. You know, there are various subscriptions like to the uh, whatever connect service that now is hilariously antiquated. The idea that you need to subscribe to a, a uh, you know, uh, whatever you got to Lexus say, you got to subscribe to Lexus's navigation system or their emergency contacts or whatever, as opposed to just using your dang phone. But uh, I, I got why that was of subscription because it's extra services. But like the idea of uh, one of the fairly basic functions of your car, you have to pay them five dollars a month for the rest of your life to like use your power windows. Wait a minute. <laughs> and they are actively exploring how to do that because they know. Well, we all know that once you get these tiny little subscriptions going, you never think of them again. It's just part of your life. Right. Yeah, that is something. So, we'll play uh, it honey, for I you. wish I could wash the windshield, uh, but the fluid is a subscription thing. And <laughs> I canceled it last <laughs> month, so I got to climb on out with a bucket of water. <laughs> Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. I forewarned you. Let's go, Brandon. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Luckily, some breaking news continues to keep Sean at bay. What is it that you have if we run out of material? Uh, Ten best Star Wars villains ranked uh, Mm, from the Den of Geek. Moff Gideon, number three, recency bias. There's no reason for him to be above Grand Admiral Thrawn. No, 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 no. What? Us discussing it is not you doing it. Oh. Recency bias. (laughs) It's ridiculous, Den of Geek. Ridiculous. Supreme Court rulings coming out in June every day. Any day we're on the air, a big ruling could come out. This one, Joe will have to tell me how big a deal it is. The Supreme Court rules against permanent residency for some immigrants. The Supreme, oh. the Supreme Court ruled today. <laughs> I like the ruling, though. The Supreme Court ruled today that immigrants who entered the U.S. illegally and were later allowed to remain in the country for humanitarian reasons are not eligible to become permanent residents. A unanimous decision by the court. Wow. That could affect thousands of people, including many who have lived in the United States for years and had hoped, had hoped to obtain lawful permanent resident status. Justice Elena Kagan, writing for the court, said the decision was a straightforward application of U.S. law. Yeah, that's what a lot of us have been calling for for years. Let's just apply the laws we've already got. If you don't like them, we'll change them. We'll talk about changing them. But let's enforce the law. It's a straightforward application of the law. Again, a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court, which generally requires an immigrant to have been lawfully admitted to the U.S. before you can become eligible for a green card. The fact that you needed to exhale the carbon dioxide to speak that sentence is amazing to me. The decision of You can't sneak in and, oh, I guess we got to make you a citizen now. This is an interesting kind of spin from the hill. Uh, spin, but true. The decision handed a legal victory to the Biden administration, who found itself at odds with a number of Democratic lawmakers and immigrant rights advocacy groups. So that's true. Yeah, they're absolutely under pressure from their left flank to just throw away the very idea of a border. Yeah. Huh. 
Wow, unanimous. There are 400,000 people currently living in the U.S. under that uh, situation. You know, uh, it was I had quite the experience Saturday evening. I was watching the news and watching a feature on people pouring across the border and the cartels and the rest of it, and just these buses full of people day after day after day coming across the country and us saying, well, you got a kid with you, so I guess you're in for good. And then I go to dinner and and meet some lovely folks who are Brits who are now in the U.S. living Hello. in the U.S. and they they didn't actually talk like that. And um, call your boss pudding, please. We don't have any pudding. Pardon me. What, this restaurant doesn't serve pudding. If I might get to my point, uh, these people. Uh, he was a lawyer. She is a. Something to do with, like, rehabilitation, medical rehabilitation, uh, post-operative, that sort of thing. Thoroughly lovely people. And they briefly detail the incredible struggles they've had through the years trying to be allowed to stay in the United States. And the yin and the yang of it is enough to make you insane. Yeah, it really is. This is, well, it's, it's lawlessness. This is what you get with lawlessness. Um, there are more people that are, uh, what's got a hashtag now? Does it have a hashtag? It should have a hashtag. Knockout conspiracies emerge after a suspicious Floyd Mayweather Logan Paul video. Have you seen the video? Cause I just read about it. When you see the video, Floyd Mayweather last night hits the YouTube star. The star clearly is crumpling and the very strong Mayweather like holds him up. And just keeps him from falling over until he like gets his wits back about him. So it's seems pretty clear that Mayweather knocked him out or almost knocked him out and held him up until he got his his conscience back. What do you suppose uh, was going on there? I don't know. Who knows what their agreement was between the two of them? That's exactly where I was going, Sean. Your theory? It's better for business if I don't embarrass these people that I'm trying to fight. If yeah. I if I put on enough of a show, they get to say, "Hey, I went the distance with a world champ." Right? You get more of these fights. He said pre-fight that I've retired from boxing. I haven't retired from entertaining. He's just cashing checks. Okay. And he made All a couple right. million dollars. Yeah, I get that. I get from Floyd May. I get from Logan Paul's camp. Why? Listen, don't humiliate the guy. This is just brand building. We're gonna pay you a buttload of money to help build this guy's brand. All right, Floyd. Floyd gets it. He's a pro. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. Well, the whole thing was obviously an exercise in cashing checks Mm -hmm. and only that. So, well, interesting. General Grievous all the way at number 10, you say, Sean. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I've never even heard any of these names before. Uh, you heard Moff Gideon. He was in the, uh, he was in the Mandalorian. That's the recency bias. He was in the most recent okay. show. He's at three. No, no reason he should be that high. Grand Admiral Thrawn. I understand why you wouldn't necessarily, uh, know him. He was based <laughs> largely in the, uh, kind of the ancillary books, not even really a, a, a George Lucas character, but, uh, very what, Grand Salon Thrawn? What did you say? Grand Admiral Thrawn, inspired oh. by Sherlock Holmes and legendary military strategists like oh, Alexander the Great. Oh, jeez, you're killing me with this. Just, Killing me. <laughs> so we've said for Kylo years. Kylo Ren at number eight. Oh, I'm I'm done. I'm done. Sorry. <laughs> yes, you are. You were done before. Please stop. So uh, we've said for years that Thomas Friedman's written some great stuff about the Middle East. But man, when it comes to uh, domestic stuff, he's insufferable. Not only that, but he's got this adolescent thing where he falls in love with ideas and then just goes crazy describing how wonderful they are and. Just he gets all enthusiastic and hormonal about various things.
things. If I may step in here, because I think I know where you're going, I used to watch Charlie Rose every night. And Tom Friedman would be on Charlie Rose. Comparing notes on open robes and that sort of thing. Regularly. Regularly, given his speech about how much better they've got it in China with their government and how oh. amazing it is, and wouldn't it be great if we could be like China? He did that all the time, and I'd always watch it, and I'd think, really? Are you really saying this? Yeah, yeah. Well, Jonah Goldberg actually put had a piece in the Dispatch, which deals with some of the Tom Friedman stuff, but goes back to the progressive era in the 20th century. Woodrow Wilson and all those people, they were incredibly racist. I mean, they believed the government should have all power to do anything it wanted. There is no such thing as the natural rights of man. The only rights that exist on Earth are the rights that the government says you have and that they should have the right to toss the Constitution just perfectly humanity. I mean, there were, they were monsters, a lot of the, the heroes of the democratic 20th century. But anyway, FDR had some, some pretty bizarre thoughts in that direction too. But anyway, uh, in 05, 2005, Thomas Friedman wrote, Dear God in heaven, forgive me my fins, my sins, not fins. <laughs> He's not a dolphin. He's a sinner. Forgive me my sins, for I have been to China and I've had bad thoughts. Forgive me, Heavenly Father, for I have cast an envious eye on the authoritarian Chinese political system where leaders can and do just order that problems be solved. I cannot help but feel a tinge of jealousy at China's ability to be serious about its problems and actually do things that are tough and require taking things away from people. Dear Lord, please accept accept my expression of remorse for harboring such feelings. Amen. And then in his book, The World is Flat, there's a whole chapter titled China for a Day in which he explains how awesome it would be if America could have a Chinese-style dictatorship one day a year, because then you could impose your will on the country. And Jonah Goldberg wrote, switching to his piece, why it's as if the Federalist Papers, with all that stuff about checks and balances, divided government, and the need for cooler passions and diffuse power were brilliant. The one mistake Madison, Hamilton, and Jay made was not specifying that all that stuff should bind the government for only 364 days a year. On the 365th day, tyranny, tyranny day, policymakers could do whatever they want. Yeah, Tom Friedman would go on all, all the time about how in China, if uh, if she decides, wasn't she at the time, but if she decided now we need a bridge here, they'd build the bridge in like two weeks. And it didn't have to go through all the crap that we have in our government. Well, we used to be able to do a lot of that. I was reading an article the other day about how the Empire State Building was built in about a year. And now there'd be At no... At the height way. of the Great Depression, right? And now you'd no way you could even get the paperwork for environmental studies done in a year, let alone build a building like that in a year. No, no, you couldn't even apply. Yep. Uh, but then Friedman said a little more recently in 09, watching both the health care and climate energy debates in Congress, it is hard not to draw the following conclusion. There is only one thing worse than one party autocracy, and that is one party democracy, which is what we have in America today. One-party autocracy certainly has its drawbacks. Oh, thank you for conceding that, Tom. But when it is led by a reasonably enlightened group of people, as China is today, it can also have great advantages. That one party can just impose the politically difficult but critically important policies needed to move a society forward in the 21st century. So after surveying China's enlightened policies, Friedman said, our one-party democracy is worse. And by the way, that's during a time where the Democratic Party controlled the presidency, the House, and the Senate by wide margins. He was complaining about the Republicans, which is odd. But there are, and, and the ACLU thing we were talking about a little bit earlier, there are absolutely signs 
that there are people on the left who believe they are so righteous and so right that they should be entrusted with installing a China-style single-party rule. Friedman, that was not an idle mental exercise. He was fantasizing and praising the reasonably enlightened people who lead China. It w- which was a lie, we now know. Yeah. Um, that was kind of the apex of us believing that they were going to be good guys. Well, that you know, the problem has always been you make somebody a king, you know, the wise and benevolent king is the best form of government, but you can't count on a wise and benevolent king. Um, Even if they're wise and benevolent when they take the throne, they won't stay that way. That's just humans at work. Sometimes they become villains, perhaps one of the top ten Star Wars villains. You just (laughs) don't know. Why do you keep bringing that back up again? I just kind of like playing with fire. I don't know what you're trying to do there. I kind of like walking up to the line. Now, set aside the performance that Adam for Kylo Ren. There's no reason for him. Just on the character alone, he shouldn't be number eight on this list. He's got to be top five, minimum. Boba Fett, please, get out of the top five. No idea what he's talking about. (laughs) Not the slightest. Boba Fett. Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. Point of personal privilege. Don't get brazen with me. The Armstrong and Getty Show. The FDA has approved a new obesity drug that helps people drop weight by about 15%. Let me do some quick math. Participants lost weight steadily for 16 oh, months before plateauing. Be great. 15%. So for me, that'd Heck be. About, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. That'd be, yeah. For, for listeners who don't know, I'm 475 pounds. So that's a fair amount of weight. He I'm not. I'm really not. He's 575 pounds. <laughs> it's, uh, we is the name of the drug and, um, the FDA just approved it. So maybe you'll hear about it or ask, ask your doctor about we The problem was the old one was we go poo. If you ate the wrong thing, it's sudden. Un- An uncontrollable bowel movements. Now that's a side effect. I gotta think that at some point science is gonna come up with a drug that handles our lifestyles. Obviously, it would be better if we all exercised more and ate better. But let's live in the real world where we aren't doing that, and some sort of drug that I don't know just just doesn't make that stuff stick. You eat that you- crap that does no good to your body, and it just goes through you. Here's where I ruin everything. Joe's going to ruin everything. This is a little ru- feature called Joe Ruins Everything. Play the theme music, Michael. Welcome to Joe Ruins Everything. Two, but, three, four. But up, 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 up. Woo! Come on. What do we have to tip you? What's going on in there? What are you doing in there? <laughs> I was having a computer issue. <laughs> All right. Uh, anyway, uh, here's where I ruin everything. Remember. That insanely frustrating reality of human biology that once you get to a certain weight, your animal brain says that's the weight you should be. And if you cheat yourself, what cheat? If you uh, don't take in enough calories, if you lose weight, your brain is desperate to get back to that weight and will slow your metabolism and the rest of it. So if, if science really wants to do me a favor, that's what they, they would address fix. that. Yeah, that's the thing that needs to be fixed is the set point for your weight my doctor first mentioned this to me years ago before i ever read about it in the popular press that your brain gets a a set weight and then that's that's what you're going to be because for 99.9 percent of the existence of homo sapiens nobody ever got fat it was impossible 
So your body, it just has, it has like a one-way alarm. Losing weight, losing weight. We have a problem. We have a famine here. It doesn't matter if you started at 275 pounds. Right. The alarm's not that sophisticated. Uh, another problem. How much money is enough? Maybe you're thinking about that as you drive to work on a Monday. Hey, my stinky job. My boss, I'd like to see him or some fire ants and put a bill in my hair. <laughs> what now? Wow. How much money is enough? A simple thought experiment to give you the exact number you need to aim for. The key is to not compare yourself with others because um, there are all kinds of studies that show if people next to you have nicer stuff, you feel like you need more. If you have nicer stuff than the people next to you, you feel satisfied. Whether in scenario A, your stuff was actually nicer than in scenario B. Positive Sean, the king of the aphorism with one of his favorite sayings. Comparison is the thief of joy. That is so good. So the real answer to figure out if you've got enough is to take a hard look at your own financial realities and come up with a goal number and keep that in mind. Uh, we've also talked about this over the years. It's usually around $75,000 a year. You know, it depends on where you live. Adjust it higher or lower for wherever you live. That up to that point, money does make you happier. It makes your life better. It gives you higher life satisfaction. But above that number... It really starts to go the other direction because you're spending time working to get more money that isn't going to make you any happier. Hmm. Um, and again, you have to adjust it for where you live. There are places where that's way ton of money. There are places where that's nothing. So. Yeah. But one way to calculate the point is to figure out how much money you'd need to make decisions based entirely on enjoyment and impact without pressure to earn. This is the goal of uh, the FIRE movement. Financial independence, retire early. It's oh, yeah, I've read a fair amount about it's this. Boosters generally say that 25 times your expected annual expenses is enough. So if you can live on $50,000 a year comfortably, you need to save 25 times that, $1.25 million, and then you'll be okay to be able to pull that off. So, again, you have to adjust that number up or down based on um, where you live or... You know, it could be your whatever you need, although they have a term in here that I really like, um, lifestyle inflation. It's really easy to fall for lifestyle inflation. Things you are perfectly happy with at 35, perfectly happy with this kind of car, this kind of restaurant, this kind of house. At 55, you need much better. Well, okay, you know, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but you well, might, you were happy with it before, so. With all due respect to these hippies and their idiotic notions, I spend $50,000 on wine and cheese every year. <laughs> how, how look how we... happy I am. <laughs> but perhaps the best way to get a feeling for your goal number is a simple thought experiment. Suppose you're one of five people. Okay. Who've been selected by a mysterious philanthropist to participate in a contest. What is going on with this mysterious philanthropist? The five of you <laughs> Why all... Why has he chosen us? The five of you all have comparable debt levels and costs of living, as well as similar middle-class financial situations. You're all roughly the same age, equally healthy, have the same number of children, and you all live moderately low-risk lifestyles. Now, do we start dying one by one like it's an Agatha Christie mo- novel? or The key what? is to sneak up on one of the other ones behind them with a knife in your teeth. <laughs> Oh, so I did it. Well, wow. <laughs> no. Privately and one by one, a representative of the donor approaches each of you with a blank check and a pen and poses the following question. How much money would you have to be paid right here, right now to retire today and never receive another dollar of income for the rest of your life? The catch is that whoever among the five players writes the lowest amount on the check will be paid that sum. The other four players will get nothing. So it's a, oh. it gives you a great incentive to come up with the lowest number you possibly can 
that you think you could retire on without needing another dollar. It's like the prisoner's dilemma, but totally different. It's like the trolley car, only way different. <laughs> only completely dissimilar. Wow. Well, it depends what it's, age you are, obviously. If you went to a 23-year-old and asked him that question, and a 70-year-old, that's kind of unfair. It's like the marshmallow experiment with first graders, except not at all. <laughs> well, that's right. We're all the same in this scenario. Yes. This mysterious philanthropist. <laughs> I don't know, but it's a, it's a decent point to, uh, you know, and one, one advantage of this might be the earlier you figure out this number, you might, you might curb some of that lifestyle inflation a little. Yes. Yeah. It's an interesting question. I don't think it's a simple one. Uh, and, and I'd like to discuss it a little more. I mean, like, since I was a little kid, I was a golf freak. I just love the game of golf. So I'm going to have a more expensive lifestyle, lifestyle than somebody whose favorite like thing me, to do I'm, is fishing. Yeah, I'm never going to play golf, so I have no need I, for golf. I ruined the game. I write down a dollar on the check. I've watched too much The Price is Right. 